Hey everyone, welcome to Ed Altitude. So, if I were to draw up a list of Air Force missions, like say, counterinsurgency, combat search and rescue, covert personnel and asset delivery and recovery, psychological operations, aviation assistance to developing nations, deep battlefield resupply, interdiction, close air support, in short, anything that has a whiff of unconventional warfare, you would immediately think AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command. If you read the fact sheet on AF.mil, you would think that Air Force Special Operations had only been around since AFSOC stood up in 1990. But the fibers that are woven into the fabric of today's Air Force Special Operations, making AFSOC a diverse, agile, and resilient command, were spun up long before there was an AFSOC, or even a military branch called the United States Air Force. In fact, the first Special Operations Wing can trace its heritage all the way back to 1923, when a fighter squadron was established to exclusively protect the Panama Canal. Then squadrons based in French and Dutch Guiana and Puerto Rico were assigned to exclusively protect aircraft being sent by ferrying command to Europe under the Lend-Lease Act before the United States had even officially entered World War II. But all modern-day Air Force Special Operators can trace their common moniker, Air Commando, back to the mid-1940s in the China-Burma-India theater of World War II with the establishment of the first and second Air Commando groups. The first U.S. Army Air Force commands created primarily for unconventional warfare. I learned about this long before there was an AF.mil or a Wikipedia. My father, in fact, was a C-46 and C-47 pilot with the 317th Troop Carrier Squadron of the 2nd Air Commandos. He was dropping platoons of British Gurkhas to support the liberation of Rangoon and flying weapons and supplies from Lido, India to Kunming, China over the Himalaya Mountains, a route known somewhat facetiously as the Hump. Fully loaded C-47s with a ceiling of about 23,000 feet were flying 22,000-foot gaps between 28,000-foot-high peaks. Downdrafts, poor visibility, and mechanical problems often meant death. Other Air Commando pilots delivered special operators behind Japanese lines by small scout planes. They organized guerrilla fighters, coordinated drops of weapons and supplies to resistance fighters, and gathered intel on Japanese forces. In fact, Air Force pararescuemen can trace their lineage back to Captain John L. Blackie Porter, commander of the first organized air rescue unit in the theater, known as Blackie's Gang. In August of 1943, the unit took off from India in two C-47 aircraft, parachuted supplies, and three medical personnel behind enemy lines to care for the wounded among 20 people who had bailed out of a stricken C-46 over Burma, and in an area that contained not just Japanese troops, but also tribes of headhunters. World War II air commandos even performed the very first combat search and rescue mission by helicopter, making two trips in a rickety Sikorsky VR-4B to retrieve four friendlies from behind enemy lines. Following the Japanese surrender, those air commandos stayed in China to support the nationalist government's counterinsurgency efforts against Mao Zedong's communist forces, before turning over their aircraft to the Thai Air Force to aid in their fight against communist insurrection. Those same counterinsurgency mission sets were expanded in Vietnam. Units like the Jungle Jims, who wore bush hats usually worn by Australian soldiers and unmarked clothing, flew covert ground attack, airlift, and psyops missions into Laos, using aircraft that were marked as South Vietnamese Air Force, not U.S., while combat search and rescue packages had a nearly non-stop mission tempo rescuing down pilots and others who were escaping and evading the enemy. Of 19 Air Force crosses awarded during the Vietnam War, 10 went to pararescue jumpers. Operation Eagle Claw, the failed mission to rescue American hostages held in Iran in 1980, led to the realization that those mission capabilities, along with the emergence of special air refueling, space, advances in communication and command and control, and electronic warfare, needed to be organized under the umbrella of a major Air Force command to be truly interoperable, agile, and effective. 
Now, this history of agility and resilience in executing highly specialized mission sets as strategic requirements quickly shift is one of the hallmarks of AFSOC. Today, changes in strategic focus have dictated that AFSOC must once again do what it has done throughout special operations history, pivot mission focus, embrace new technologies and capabilities, and build a core of air commandos with multiple skill sets to prosecute those missions regardless of rapid changes in the battle space. Recently, Staff Sergeants Janiqua Robinson and Sarah Voigt sat down with AFSOC Commander and Special Operations Lifer, Lieutenant General James Slife, to discuss new technologies, capabilities, and priorities as the United States shifts focus from decades of conflict in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the War on Terror to countering peer adversaries, such as Russia and China. So join us as General Slife sheds a little light on the ever-changing AFSOC mission and the Agile Air Commandos that are getting the job done. I'm Joe Eddins, and you are at altitude. I'm ready. Okay. Um, so first, I just want you to introduce yourself. Okay. Uh, well, my name is Lieutenant General Jim Slife. I'm uh, the commander of Air Force Special Operations Command. This is where I've spent most of most of my career. You know, if I have a MAGCOM home, yeah, it is AFSOC. I uh, had my first assignment here in the summer of 1992, and uh, and I've been in and out of AFSOC pretty much my my whole career since then. I'm the first. I'm the first AFSOC commander that has grown up in an Air Force that had a thing called an AFSOC. AFSOC was, was founded in 1990, and all my predecessors, you know, kind of lived a career that was, you know, part of it was before there was even such a thing as an AFSOC and then, and then afterwards. But, you know, in my career, there's always been an AFSOC, and so I, um, I'm privileged to have the opportunity to serve here. So you mentioned that AFSOC was formed in the 90s. Um, how did AFSOC come to be? So uh, the, the story of AFSOC existence really is um, starts in the years kind of following the close of the, the Vietnam War. So in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, AFSOC or AFSOF, the Air Force Special Operations Forces, drew down similar to what was happening in, in other parts of the military as well. And we really didn't have uh, um, a great uh, uh, capacity of special operations forces by the time we got to 1980. And in 1980, we had this catastrophic event um, that occurred in, in April of that year in the deserts of Iran at a place that is, is kind of known as Desert One. It was a landing site in the middle of, of Iran, south of Tehran, where uh, a rescue force was going to stage in order to conduct a rescue mission for American hostages that had been taken during the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Uh, that mission failed. And in the aftermath of that failure, uh, there were some observations that we had about our special operations force. Uh, one of the, the main observations that we had was we didn't have a force of specialized capabilities that were poised for crisis response operations around the globe. We, we didn't have that capability. Uh, we didn't have a force that routinely operated with the other services jointly interoperable to do a mission like that. So what we had found in this uh, failed mission to rescue hostages was that it was a cobbled together team uh, that didn't have any experience working together. They didn't know each other's training standards. Their equipment wasn't interoperable. And so we needed a special operations force that, that was interoperable there. And so after April of 1980, we began to build that force. And, and by 1990, um, AFSOC uh, was created both as an Air Force uh, Major Air Command but also as the Air Force component of the newly established U.S. Special Operations Command. And so this was really uh, 1990. It was about a decade after that catastrophe at Desert One was when AFSOC came to be. When we actually entered the building, we saw the memorial on the side of the wall, um, and we received a brief history of it and had goosebumps. Um, yeah. It's quite beautiful. Yes. 
Okay. So to, to transition from the history down to present day, um, I'm going to go ahead and start to talk about the Emerging Threat School Partners and Joint Force of today. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to hop right in to, we're going to talk about gray zone warfare, um, like joint interoperability with other countries, that sort of thing. So to get started, um, can you define gray zone warfare and how it applies to AFSOC today? So I think gray zone warfare, it's kind of a term of art. I don't think if you were to open up the DOD dictionary, you would find the, the term gray zone warfare defined precisely. But I think it, it is generally accepted to mean operations that take place uh, with enough ambiguity with regards to attribution. In other words, it's, it's not precisely clear who's doing the action, whether it's state sanctioned or whether they're, whether, uh, you know, it's something other than uh, state sanctioned uh, activities that are taking place that essentially uh, either change the facts on the ground or create enough um, uncertainty and dilemmas about what's going on that uh, you buy time until something, uh, some set of circumstances come about um, that become hard to hard to wind back. And so, if you look at what Russia did in uh, the um, uh, eastern part of Ukraine uh, and in the uh, Crimea region, um, they had these so-called little green men, is what people called them. But basically, they they were. Um, um, mercenary forces, paramilitary forces that uh, were not readily identifiable as Russian state-sponsored. Everybody expected it, but nobody was sure enough to be able to take immediate action against Russia until the facts on the ground had already been established. And that's an example of uh, gray zone warfare, but it, it deals with ambiguity and misattribution of what's going on on the ground until you get some outcome that is uh, that, that it is too hard to unwind. And how does um, knowing about that, how does that translate to the AFSOC mission? Well, I think um, the special operations forces in general are ideally postured uh, to engage in gray zone activities. The special operations forces of all the services, not just AFSOC, um, operate across a spectrum of visibility and attribution. So there are some things that we do that are very visible and very attributable. You know, when a AC-130 gunship shows up somewhere, uh, there's really no question where it comes from, right? There, there's only one place where big gray airplanes with 105 millimeter cannons sticking out of the side come from. And so that, it's not hard to figure that out. But there are other capabilities that we have that are, that are less visible or less attributable. Uh, that um, posture uh, the special operations forces to be able to uh, change the facts on the ground and uh, create dilemmas and uncertainty for our adversaries. Okay. Um, so the recently published Interim National Security Strategic Guidance prioritizes being technologically superior to China and Russia, and it specifically outlines um, how to combat disinformation campaigns. Um, can you describe the specific types of threats the U.S. should be the most concerned um, from those adversaries? Well, I think every nation's you know, form of governance, I think, um, uh, creates both opportunities and risks. And in a democracy, of course, the strength of our, of our uh, form of governance is in the people. Our government is um, um, created by the people, for the people. Uh, and so the population of, of any democracy, the United States certainly, are both the strength but also uh, an opportunity for an adversary to exploit uh, that, that form of government. And so for the United States, I think our populace is at risk of being fed disinformation that perhaps uh, turns us against one another, turns us against uh, you know, a particular political party, sows discord uh, in our uh, in our nation. Those are the, the types of things that I think we're, we're at greatest risk of. And so disinformation is certainly one of those things that, that we need to be uh, cautious of. But I think there, there are lots of other places where um, we need to be on our guard for adversaries that, that wish to do, our, do us harm or challenge our interests. Uh, certainly the proliferation of 
mobile devices uh, make every one of us easier to find, make our, our activities easier to track. Uh, they reveal information about us. There are lots of cyber opportunities, both in, you know, in our personal lives, but also in our infrastructure in the United States. So whether it's gas pipelines and uh, transportation infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, all of those things are vulnerable to things like cyber attack. And so disinformation is certainly one, but I think cyber attack uh, is another area where we're, where, um, we and, and frankly, every other nation are at great risk because those uh, those pieces of infrastructure are not typically as well hardened as military capabilities are. Um, and how are those threats? How would you say that they're under undermining our democracy? Well, I think uh, when when you hear questions about the legitimacy of uh, the election results, uh, for example, or when you see uh, the heavily partisan nature of um, everything from um, you know, domestic politics to the way news is reported, uh, the, the slant that, that various news organizations will put on, on a story uh, the, to appeal to a particular constituency. These types of divisions in our, in our society are, are unhelpful. And I think social media has, has exacerbated this in many ways. You know, we, I have a, a Facebook account, I'm sure, you know, uh, I'm not sure anybody under the age of about 45 has a Facebook account, but, um, but, uh, but I do. And what I've found is that, of course, uh, you know, there are people on there that, you know, that I went to high school with that I, I haven't really seen in many, many years. But when I read some of the stuff that they, uh, that they post, I find, well, I, you know, I, I, I don't agree with that. And, you know, it irritates me to hear that. And so I can just unfollow that, right? And I, and I can tune my social media feed to the point where it's just feeding me things that I already agree with. And so that actually serves a very unhelpful purpose because I'm not uh, being exposed to other sides of an argument. What I'm actually being exposed to are, uh, are ideas that just reinforce what I already think. And so I think, you know, the, the, um, the confluence of these things, whether it's, it's disinformation, whether it's a, a heavy, uh, heavily um, politicized environment that we're living in domestically, uh, the advent of, of social media that is tuned, uh, you know, to, to whatever your particular views are. I think those things all really um, serve to be uh, threats to our ability to act civilly towards one another as citizens. I would like you to know that I do have a Facebook. And I had one, I've had one for quite some time, so I'm, I'm with it. I'm still cool. <laughs> Are you? Well, I think so. Uh, well, good. Yeah. I'm, so I'm not sure any of us know when, when we cease being cool. I'm pretty sure I'm already there, but uh, uh, I have a hard time believing it. Yeah. My mom tells me I'm cool, and that's enough, right? <laughs> okay. So competitors seek to outpace the SOCOM enterprise in these areas. Um, you actually just mentioned a lot of them. Electromagnetic spectrum, cyber domain operations in the information environment and space. Uh, where does AFSOC stand in defense of these emerging threats? So how do you plan to defend them? Well, I think it, with respect to where do we stand in defense uh, against the, these emerging threats, I mean, for every action, there, there is some counteraction that we can take. So certainly, we're trying to protect ourselves against threats in those domains. But, um, you know, I, I don't think we would be uh, good special operators in AFSOC if we weren't thinking about how we can use those things uh, to actually exploit our adversaries' weaknesses. And, you know, many of these areas, the electromagnetic spectrum, the cyber, uh, cyber domain, uh, certainly all, uh, all the attention that's being put on the space domain these days, all of those things are very technically complex. And, you know, this is, I'm, I'm serving now in my uh, sixth assignment uh, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, um, four times at Hurlburt and twice in Tampa. And one thing that I've learned in six assignments on the Gulf uh, Coast of Florida is that the only thing better than owning a boat is having a friend that owns a boat. And uh, so as I think about things like cyber capability and electromagnetic attack and, and, and those types of things, you know, I'm not sure we have to become the experts in that in AFSOC, 
but we need the relationships with the people that are the experts in that. And so I need, I need those friends that have, have those boats uh, that from time to time I can call on uh, my counterparts around the Air Force and the Joint Force to bring those capabilities to bear in support of soft operations. And who are the friends with the boats? <laughs> the friends with the boats are, are the people that have those those capabilities and authorities, you know. And so when you think about space, for example, uh, the the U.S. Space Force and uh, and operationally the United States Space Command have uh, tremendous capability, and uh, we just need the the relationships to be able to uh, leverage those capabilities and and to support their operations with uh, special operations capabilities. So it's it's very much a two way street. It's the same thing in the in the cyber spectrum. You know that there is an Air Force component to the U.S. Cyber Command, 16th Air Force. We've got a great and enduring relationship with 16th Air Force. Uh, those are the people that uh, the the relationships that I value because we can be valuable to them and they can be valuable to us in our in our respective mission areas. I've heard of the same saying, but with um, the truck analogy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the Interim National Security Strategic um, also acknowledges that the U.S. still needs to ensure um, Afghanistan does not become a haven for terrorist attacks against the U.S. So considering AFSOC's role in executing this vision, what is it going to take for AFSOC to properly combat this new irregular gray zone warfare while still maintaining national security in the Middle East? So I think... Uh, you know, the first thing that we're going to have to have, uh, and this goes beyond AFSOC, but as a, as a nation, as a U.S. military, I think the first thing that we're going to have to have is clear awareness of what's going on in, in that environment. And so, you know, whether it's Afghanistan or any other part of the world um, where terrorists may seek safe haven, we need to have some awareness of what's going on. And so we could gain that awareness through airborne intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance platforms, but that's not certainly the only way we can do it. We've become heavily dependent on that in the last 20 years, but there are lots of ways to gain insight into what's going on um, in, in places that might otherwise be a little inaccessible to us. And so there, there are different forms of intelligence. There, there's certainly open source information that uh, we can take advantage of that will help us understand what's going on. So I think uh, the first thing we have to do is have the ability to remain aware. The second thing is we have to have the ability to take action where U.S. interests are held at risk and where our, our national decision makers have decided that we need to take action. We need the ability to do that. And so we need the range, we need the precision, uh, we need the speed to be able to, to reach those parts of the globe that might be a little less accessible. So uh, I think those those are the things that Certainly, AFSOC is going to be focused on, but I think it, it goes far beyond AFSOC, really, to the to the entire U.S. government. Okay. And how will the drawdown in the Middle East affect changes in AFSOC? So how are you guys adapting to be somewhere else? So I think uh, the, the um, drawdown in the Middle East is actually providing us some breathing space uh, to make the changes that the interim national security uh, strategic guidance tell us that we need to need to make the things that we need to be focused on for the future and so while we will have to continue to maintain an ability to prosecute the counter violent extremist uh, fight on behalf of the nation that's not the only thing that we'll be doing going forward and so i think as we as we reduce our footprint um, in areas that, that we've been operating for uh, quite a number of years, I think that will give us some, some breathing space to be able to orient on places that we may have wanted to be present over the last uh, several years, but we, we simply didn't have the capacity to do it. And so it's going to give us the ability to uh, focus on more global threats. Um, so during the opening statements at the Emerging Threats and Capabilities meeting, the Air Force was the only service to recognize and outline a major shift from their Special Forces command tactics and procedures. Is there a consensus among the services for major changes in the SOCOM community? And if so, um, are these ideas talked about and acted on as a joint team? 
So uh, yes, there is a consensus, and yes, that they are um, talked about and acted on as a joint team. I think all the all the commanders, um, the component commanders, the the, um, the operational commanders inside of the U.S. Special Operations Command, we all acknowledge what the future operating environment will require from us, and and we all I think have a very uh, consistent view of what that what that future looks like and how we jointly have to adapt ourselves to meet it. But how the individual service components have to adapt themselves is going to vary from component to component. So for example, in AFSOC, we recognize that, that we have some substantial um, um, change that we have to undertake in order to posture ourselves for that future. Other components may not have as substantial a change because the stuff that they have been doing is actually very well aligned to their role in the future operating environment. And so, you know, the, the scope and scale of change within U.S. Special Operations Command will probably vary from component to component, but I think we all clearly see the future operating environment uh, in, in a consistent way. So AFSOC executes tons of joint training missions with NATO partners, ally nations annually. And now that uh, the AFSOC mission is changing from counterterrorism to regular warfare, how will training with some of those countries change um, if there's any change at all? And what will maintaining those partnerships look like? So I think uh, they'll change based on our shared uh, interests uh, that, that, that we have with those with those countries. And so, you know, we, we do have an enduring interest in making sure that um, violent extremists don't have the ability uh, to reach the United States. And so we, we are going to continue to train with partners that may have an interest in counter-violent extremism. Uh, and so we'll, we will continue to do those types of things. But we'll also train with partners that uh, have interest in um, um, other global challenges that the, that the U.S. is dealing with. And so really what, what this um, change in the operating environment is doing for us is it, it, it's expanding the number of possible partners that we have around the globe. AFSOC last year alone engaged with somewhere between 80 and 90 uh, foreign countries. And we, we actually see uh, that growing in the future as uh, the number of places where we have shared interests uh, expands. Um, you mentioned um, that there would be other global challenges and that um, countries that weren't necessarily our partners would help us with those other global challenges. Can you expand on that at all? Well, uh, I, you know, our, our national defense strategy uh, that we had several years ago, as well as the interim national security strategic guidance from the current administration, identify the same global uh, challenges. I mean, we, we see uh, China and Russia challenging U.S. interests at home and abroad. Uh, we, we have other challenges around the globe that, that we're certainly uh, attentive to. Uh, the North Korean um, development of, of nuclear weapons, for example, there, there are a number of these challenges. And as the U.S. becomes more focused on things uh, that are uh, perhaps less directly tied to the counter-violent extremism uh, types of operations that we've doing, been doing for the last 20 years, I think a new set of partners will emerge. And so there perhaps are, are countries in Southeast Asia that have uh, found their own interests threatened uh, by uh, Chinese activities in the South China Sea, for example. The U.S. may may find more willing partners in that part of the world. There, there are um, uh, Chinese investments in um, Africa, for example, in South America that, um, may, that may drive um, neighbors in, in those parts of the world uh, closer to the United States as they seek a security partner uh, that isn't trying to exploit them in the way that, that China does, for example. So I think there are just lots of opportunities uh, for increased security cooperation as we go forward. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, the term great power competition describes our current affairs with Russia and China as having constant changes and advancements between superpowers over time. Do you foresee this competition being endless? Why or why not? Uh, so, I, you know, I don't I think we have to approach it as if it was endless, but uh, any cursory study of history would suggest that, you know, that um, no competition is endless. Sooner or later, 
the strategic environment once again will change. But I think that I think it's more um, it, uh, the important part is how we approach the competition, and I don't think we can approach it as if we are trying to win. I just think we have to approach it like we're having, like we're trying to gain advantage and sustain that advantage over time. And so I, I think we have to approach it like it's endless, but I don't believe it's endless. And this is my final question, and it is pretty simple. Is there anything you would like to add? Um, so I, I guess, you know, what, what I would say is we're in a time of uh, what is literally unprecedented change inside of AFSOC. And, and it's exciting. I mean, change is hard. It, it is sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's exciting. And uh, one of the things that, that we frequently talk about here is that, you know, if you don't like change, uh, wait till you try irrelevance, right? Uh, as hard as change is, irrelevance is worse. And so uh, we have to undertake this change uh, so that 10 years from now, when the, the, those middle school kids of today uh, join the Air Force and put on an AFSOC patch, I want to make sure that those middle school kids of today join an AFSOC that is indispensable for the nation. I want them to know that the, that the command that they're joining matters, that they are going to find themselves doing things that are critically important to the United States, and that they're relevant. And so uh, as relevant as we have been for the last 20 years, we have to accelerate change in order to make sure those middle school kids are going to be relevant 10 years from now when they put on our patch. Great. All right. So earlier you mentioned that you uh, wanted the middle schoolers who put on the patch to be to know that they're indispensable. Um, how does that correlate like with the inflection points? And what is different about the inflection point that we're currently in? Yeah. So when you talk about inflection points, you know, one of the things that I that I talk to our force about is that uh, we have to have a kind of a long view of, of where we've come from. And I think that in the post-Vietnam era, uh, the Air Force Special Operations Forces have had three of these inflection points. And, and when I describe an inflection point, what I'm talking about is a point in time where the thing that we have been doing is not actually the thing that we have to do in the future. And so I mentioned the first one of those inflection points earlier, which was in April of 1980, uh, in the deserts of Iran when we realized that we did not have a force that maintained a high state of readiness, uh, was jointly interoperable, and was um, you know, built for crisis and contingency response. We didn't have that force, and so we had to, we had to build that force. And so we, we became something that we weren't after Vietnam in response to this kind of moment in time. The second one of those moments in time uh, of course, was in September of 2001. And so we had this highly trained, jointly interoperable, high state of readiness force that was poised for crisis and contingency response. And what we found after 9-11 was that uh, we had to become a force that could deploy and just stay deployed. That was not the force that we had built after April of 1980. And so we had to build that after, after September of 2001. And so after that, you know, AFSOC became uh, the, the most deployed MAGCOM in the Air Force. Uh, the installations that, that are our power projection platforms at Hurlburt and Cannon are the, are the most deployed installations in the Air Force uh, over the last decade. Uh, that was the force we had to become. And so it, it, there was a lot of investment. There was a lot of change that, that took place uh, to become that. Uh, but I, I say that we are at a third inflection point. So we're at another one of these moments where when we look at the future and, and where we are today, we realize that that force that we've built over the last 20 years that has served us extraordinarily well uh, doing the things that we've asked it to do for the last 20 years is not actually the force we're going to need uh, in the future operating environment. And I, when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that we need to you know, uh, throw away all the airplanes and go buy new airplanes. Uh, that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, the heart of our force is our airmen. That is our, that is our competitive advantage in AFSOC, is the airmen of the command. And so what we have to do is we have to equip 
uh, and, and develop and organize the airmen of the command for that future operating environment. So when, when I say we have to become something different, uh, what I mean is we, we have to help our airmen become what the nation is going to need them to be over the coming years. So how will things like the Evil Genius Competition and the uh, SHU Institute of Innovation, how will, how will that help those airmen get there? Yeah, so the Evil Genius Competition was something we did last year. In fact, it was so successful, we decided to do it again this year. But it was a, it was a classified competition, so we, we, we ran it all on classified networks, where we took a particular uh, uh, competitor in a particular theater, and we asked our airmen to help us think of ways that we could cause uh, dilemmas and challenges uh, for those adversaries. And so um, the, our, our airmen came back with, with a number of really, really uh, um, clever and disruptive ideas about things that we could be doing to uh, create dilemmas and uncertainty for our adversaries. And, and we went through a, a um, kind of a down select process. And we ended up with five finalists at the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force and I sat down and listened to, and, and we decided to apply uh, funding uh, to each one of those five, funding and, and advocacy to each one of those five uh, to actually continue to develop the idea and, uh, and make them operational. And so we're doing the same thing again again this year. So that, that's really the evil genius competition. And it started with the uh, assistant secretary. Uh, it uh, was kind of lamenting to me that it's too bad that we couldn't have a some kind of an evil genius competition inside the Air Force to think about how we could, um, you know, create problems for our adversaries. And I said, why can't we? I've got 21,000 evil geniuses uh, in AFSOC that would love to help us think of, of ways to do that. And so that, that's where that idea came from. But very, very successful. Uh, the SHU Innovation Institute, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting one. That's a um, locally at Hurlburt Field, uh, one of the... Um, uh, local uh, uh, business people is, is a fellow named Paul Shu, and, and uh, Mr. Shu uh, has a very compelling life story. It's kind of the American dream. He was an immigrant from Taiwan, uh, became a businessman in the United States. Didn't have, you know, didn't come from a family of wealth or anything, uh, and and built, uh, uh, you know, a number of businesses. Became very successful, and he wants to give back, uh, give back to. To the country that adopted him, the United States. And so one of the ways uh, that he's done that is by founding this Innovation Institute where he has, has raised money uh, and we've engaged in a partnership with him where our airmen are allowed to go to this, uh, to this facility that's not, not too far away from Hurlburt and, uh, and they uh, learn about things like coding and, and drones and AI and uh, they have this space, uh, uh, additive manufacturing, you know, 3D printing, that type of thing. And airmen uh, can go over there and learn these skills and uh, essentially solve problems that they may be dealing with in their own workplace. And so, you know, an airman says, you know, I've got this, uh, th this problem in my squadron and I want to be able to solve it. And we have some experts over at the SHU Institute that can help airmen learn the skills needed to go solve the problem inside their squadron. So, you know, it, it essentially is an empowering tool for our airmen to, to use modern uh, technologies to solve their own, solve their own problems. It, it's a really uh, fascinating case study in uh, a public-private partnership. Yeah, we got a chance to uh, visit over there and we actually met some of the code mandos. They were very excited that they got a chance to meet you. Um, did you have anything that you wanted to say about that and how they're going to help with the AFSOC mission? Yeah, so the Code Mandos is a is a neat little program that uh, some of our airmen have have uh, uh, decided to start. And of course, we at the headquarters at AFSOC, we've decided to get behind it and provide support and resourcing uh, to help them get that off the ground. But it's it's essentially uh, airmen that found themselves doing. Uh, it, it started in, in an intelligence squadron, and these airmen in this intelligence squadron found themselves doing repetitive tasks. They were just, you know, there was no, you know, um, there, there was no analysis involved. They were just, you know, uh, uh, repetitively 
you know, pointing and clicking on their computers, pointing and clicking, pointing and clicking. And uh, they said, surely there, there's a better way to do this. And so they essentially taught themselves how to code uh, and they built, um, uh, started off being uh, scripts and turned into apps uh, that they were coding that would allow them to automate many of the, these repetitive um, things that they were doing. And they really, really increased the efficiency of their um, of, of their workflow uh, in the intelligence squadron. And uh, so that has actually grown and, they, and they've gotten an app store. Uh, they're, they're, you know, generating apps that, that actually automate or uh, do um, uh, help them with the analytic tasks that they have. And, and we have now got behind them to help them actually teach that to other airmen in other squadrons that also want to, you know, uh, solve whatever whatever the problem is that they're dealing with in their squadron. And, and so, you know, it's kind of a takeoff of the term commandos, they're code mandos, and, uh, and, they're, and they're making life easier for a lot of airmen inside of AppSoc. So in addition to making life easier, how will artificial intelligence and coding and other things of that nature help AFSOC become the AFSOC that we need? So I think part of what, what we have to do with artificial intelligence is, is figure out what the use cases for that are. And there are some that are, that are very obvious. And so things like uh, predictive maintenance on some of our platforms. Of course, our, uh, the airplanes that we fly are, uh, are high-tech pieces of machinery with a lot of moving parts. And a, a lot of times we, um, we predict uh, how many spare parts we're gonna need uh, of a particular type based on how many flying hours we have. And so you might need to change a propeller every you know, 500 flying hours. And so you, you predict how many spare propellers you need to buy uh, based on how, how much you're, you're flying the airplane. But what we find is that maybe uh, when we actually collect the data on how frequently um, uh, we're going through propellers, we may find that 500 hours is not the right number. And we may actually be able to predict the conditions under which we're likely to have to change a propeller, for example. And so uh, having predictive maintenance allows us to move away from things like uh, time-based maintenance or calendar-based maintenance and move to a predictive model where you do the maintenance when the maintenance is required and not just because it's the third Thursday of the month and that's when you're supposed to do the maintenance. And so things like that uh, would be a place where artificial intelligence would be really valuable for us and help us cut down on our on our uh, the workload that we're asking of our airmen, as well as uh, cut down on the expenses that we spend in our supply system, maybe changing a propeller that we didn't have to change, for example. Another place where artificial intelligence could be really useful for us is I mentioned earlier that part of what the special operations forces bring is the ability to operate across a spectrum of visibility and attribution. And our airmen uh, need the ability to operate with a lower signature uh, than perhaps um, they're used to over, over the last number of years. We need to lower their, their signature. And what does is, what is lowering your signature mean? Well, it, it may mean lowering your, your social media signature, lowering your electronic footprint, you know, making it harder for an adversary to, to see you, to know what you're doing uh, and so forth. And so artificial intelligence is one of the tools that we can use to help with our own, what we call inside of AFSOC, our identity management, which is how do I pay attention to, to my online persona and my identity to make sure that, uh, that, um, that I don't become too predictable as an individual for our, our adversaries. So these, these are areas where I think AI can be really valuable to us. Okay. So each country has guidelines for like the ethical use of AI. How do we make sure that we're being ethical um, within our own standards? Fortunately for us, the United States has a, has a pretty clearly defined uh, set of rules about ethical behavior uh, for things like AI or intelligence collection more broadly that protect uh, the citizens of the United States by, uh, from intrusive action by its own government. And so, you know, we are not allowed to collect intelligence on American citizens. Uh, there are lots of uh, safeguards in place that, that prevent us from doing that. And all of that is built in to the AI tools that, that we have available uh, to kind of help us steer clear of those, 
those ethical boundary areas. And so I think as long as the tools that we build have those ethical boundaries built into them, I think, I think we'll be able to abide by that without too much trouble. Okay, so in addition to those uh, tools, are any of them being used to help um, AFSOC recruit? And how is the recruiting changing based on what we'll need airmen to do in the future? So I, I think when we talk about the AFSOC that we're going to need in the future, I think, uh, as I said before, our airmen are our competitive advantage. And so the question uh, is, for the future, what is the combination of attributes and experiences that our airmen are going to need to have to be successful in that em environment? And this is a place where AI can help us understand what attributes uh, are the best predictors of success in the future. So, for you know, some attributes are physical attributes, uh, for example. So, if we were, for example, uh, running a <clears throat> AI tool that was going to predict who might be most successful as an NBA center, uh, it's unlikely that it would identify me as a, as a likely candidate to be a, a successful NBA center. I don't have the right attributes for that. Or maybe uh, for certain operations, uh, we need uh, a high degree of, of um, uh, uh, regional or cultural familiarity. And so there are parts of the world where I just, I stand out because I don't look like the local population. I don't speak the language. I don't understand the customs of the local population. And so there's a set of attributes that an airman might need to have in order to be successful in, in that particular mission. And so one of the things that we're really focused on in AFSOC is moving more towards an attributes-based uh, recruiting model that allows us to get the airmen that are going to be most successful in the future operating environment and less of a uh, recruiting model that replicates what we currently have, right? So I don't want a recruiting model that recruits more of me if me is not what's going to be successful in the future, right? So just because my career has, has um, you know, been uh, successful to, to some degree doesn't necessarily mean that that model would work for the future. So an attributes-based uh, recruiting model is what we're after. Yes, sir. So with that, um, I've heard the term uh, multi-capable airmen be thrown around a lot. Is there a risk? Um, do you feel that there's a risk that we would be like have a bunch of masters of nothing um, yeah. by doing that? Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. I think this once again goes back to the attributes thing. Uh, so what, when we talk about um, multi-capable errand, typically what we're talking about is skills, right? So if, if I'm a, uh, if I'm a um, uh, power production civil engineering airman, and you know my specialty is getting generators up and running and running power cables and that kind of stuff. If that's what my specialty is, and somebody else is a logistician, and their specialty is is forklifts and and large trucks and and that type of thing, uh, it, there are probably some attributes that would allow you to predict whether I could uh, expand beyond being uh, nothing but power production into able to operate heavy equipment as well. And so I think all those things are, are very measurable. And I, I, I would say that part of what we need to do is we need to move away from a model where we define uh, what we do by our AFSCs and define what we do uh, by what the mission requires. And I think most of the airmen that we have, certainly the airmen that we have in AFSOC are capable of doing more than one thing. We just have to find where their attributes and and, uh, and and passions lie, and, and then let them do those things. Some of the the you know most fulfilling uh, roles that we have in AFSOC, we we have a number of places where we where we have these so-called multifunctional airmen, airmen that that do a little bit of everything, uh, and those that those are places where we see some of the highest job satisfaction. You know, because they're busy, they know that what they do matters. Every day, it's something different. It's not repetitive or boring. Uh, th those are places where I think airmen find a lot of fulfillment. We're looking to expand on that. All right. So with that, um, you've been in AFSOC a long time. Uh, talk about job satisfaction and things like that. Um, 
Sergeant Voigt mentioned earlier the memorial that you guys have downstairs. Um, I know that you know you've been in there a long time, but you walk by that memorial every day. If you don't mind, could you just explain a little bit about what that means to you? Yeah. So you know the the I think the memorial that that you're talking about is really where we, we captured some of the history of that that first strategic inflection point, uh, the the mission to rescue the hostages in Iran in 1980. Uh, and we have the pictures of, of the uh, crews and uh, combat controllers that were part of that mission to rescue those hostages on the wall. And so, you know, after that mission failed, we left a C-130 and a helicopter behind in Iran. We, we had killed uh, um, eight service members as part of that mission. And that the, the team uh, that came out of Iran after that failure uh, went back to Masira Island, Oman, and it, it was a, you know, it's a, a small Omani air base uh, on an island off the coast. And uh, these folks were absolutely devastated. You know, they're, they're regrouping. They've just failed on a mission of national importance. They've embarrassed the United States. They're feeling they left their, uh, you know, they, they uh, killed eight of their um Eight of their teammates died in this mishap. Um, you know they're absolutely dejected, and at the lowest moment in, in you know kind of as they realize the the scope of this um, the scope of this um, failed mission, uh, there were some British contractors on the other end of the airfield that were maintaining portions of, of the airfield on behalf of the Omanis. And these Brits, you know, were smart enough to kind of figure out what had happened, right? I mean, they, you know, it doesn't take a genius. They're watching these airplanes take off. They see the news. They see the airplanes come. I mean, they know what's happened. And so they sent two cases of beer uh, down to the other end of the runway where the Americans were. And on the top of one of those cases of beer was written in pencil, to you all from us all for having the guts to try. And so that box top is on the wall downstairs. And I think you, you had an opportunity to look at it. And to me, that's what it's all about, is uh, the United States needs uh, a group of airmen with the guts to try. And uh, so I, you know, I've spent my whole career in and around AFSOC, and uh, I can't imagine anything that I could have done with my adult life that would have been more fulfilling than uh, being able to come to work every day and serve with people uh, that have the guts to try. And that's it for this special edition of At Altitude. Thank you to Sergeants Robinson and Voigt, and especially Lieutenant General Slife and all those air commandos out there who are out of the spotlight and getting it done. For what it's worth, my dad would be proud. At Altitude is a production of Airman Magazine located at Defense Media Activity Headquarters, Fort Meade, Maryland. You can see more of our content at airman.dodlive.mil, or you can search for us on Instagram, Facebook, Divids, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Flickr, and Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Till next time.